Fabulous with Vibs and Vicky, the ThinkShift podcast for professionals who aspire to be fabulous leaders, those who not only succeed, but also purposefully seek to reinvent the world. In this episode of the Be Fabulous podcast, episode nine, the Vicky Why, our first in a three-part series on why we do what we do. And so we'll start today with the Vicky Why. Uh, think of it like the backstory of Vicky. And then uh, the second episode will be the Vips backstory. And the third episode will be the Think Shift um, backstory. And um, we're hoping this will be a little bit of a light relief from the series we've just had that's been quite heavy on thinking levels. Welcome to the Be Fabulous podcast, episode nine. I get to kick this one off today, which is kind of unusual. So I'm doing my best impression of the Vicky BBC voice. And that's because uh, Vicky is going to actually be, this, this, this subject is going to be about Vicky today. So if you think back to where we've been, we started the Be Fabulous podcast on the basis of what it means to be fabulous. Uh, we took you through the four Ds. And in the last three episodes, we've really spent going quite deep on the idea of thinking levels, which, which we're hoping all of you fabulous people everywhere will add to your toolkit and start using as a way of thinking and working through complex problems and just generally having more perspective on the world and its interdependencies as you uh, figure out how to be better leaders yourself. So today we realized, uh, Vicky and I were talking about the next set that we were going to do. And uh, we actually realized that we haven't really taken you back to the beginning. I mean, so far uh, you've heard from Vicky, you've heard from me. You know, this is this podcast has got something to do with ThinkShift, but you don't really know anything about our background or how we ended up here. So what we're going to do is we're going to actually, um, after what has been kind of three quite heavy episodes, we're going to make this one a little bit lighter and we're going to, we're going to go back to some of the origins of fabulousness. So this episode is going to be what we're calling the Vicky why, you know, what, why is Vicky doing what she's doing and what drives her and how does she fit into the mix and how does she help fabulous people everywhere become um, fabulous leaders of the future. Then we're going to do, we're going to turn the tables and she's going to, she's going to do the Vips why. And then we're going to do how that all comes together from the Think Shift why and what really fuels our mission. And quite frankly, why we do what we do as an organization above and beyond the individuals. And if we're lucky, we'll get a couple of uh, guests um, from the Think Shift crew to come in as well. So with that said, Vicky, I hope you're nervous. <laughs> Don't make me nervous, Vips. Uh, you know, this is kind of this is kind of like payback time. Normally, normally you're interviewing me and you're putting me on the spot, so I get to put you on the spot today. This is going to be fun for you, my friend. It is, it is, and it's uh, and I've, I've got I've got like you know sixteen questions here, which uh, I suspect I'll get through about three. So I'm going to open it up and, and say, okay, so Vicky, uh, what makes you fabulous? Hmm. That's a good starting point, Phipps. <laughs> I thought I'd go right into the deep end. <laughs> well, when we think about our, our definition of, of fabulous as somebody who is constantly adapting to keep pace with what's happening out there in the world and, and somebody who has a mission that's big enough that they are excited by their why and how they are looking to reinvent the world, well, I 
you know, th that's who I am. I, I have always been somebody, you know, I read about seven books a week. I've just done a master's in positive psychology. I'm looking at a master's in spiritual psychology. I'm always learning and studying. Uh, I'm a, I just love to learn. I love to soak up knowledge and then figure out ways to apply it and teach others. And I, I fundamentally hate change like most humans, but I always force myself into situations where there is change. So we touched on in our first podcast that Vips and I are from different countries. So I grew up in uh, South Africa. I moved to London in my early 20s, spent most of my career, working career there, and moved across to Los Angeles uh, in 2013. And every shift, whether it's country-wise, whether it's career-wise, whatever it might be, has been scary as all hell for me. But for me, it's always the, the downside cost of not doing it that spurs me into doing the thing that feels really, really scary. Uh, that's more important to me than feeling safe in the known. It would be the, what did, what did I miss out on? I get, guess a bit of FOMO if I didn't do it. So that overcomes my fear because I want to experience it all. That's pretty cool. If you think about it, I mean, most people run away from things that make them feel uncomfortable or, or have, the, have the potential to be, be unpleasant. And... Uh, yeah, you don't do that. I have known you for many, many, many years. And uh, it's almost like the harder it is, harder it is, the more worthwhile it is. to. Yeah. And, and, and it's also interesting, even when the this period of the pandemic and, and COVID kicked off, I noticed myself feeling energized in a whole new way. When there is a crisis, when there is something going on, something in me wakes, wakes up. It, it's like I become alive. It's like mm. I've got the world to serve. I know I can help whoever needs to be helped through whatever it is. And not that I seek chaos and crises and things, but I do find it, it enlivens me. I get really excited. I come up with yeah. so many things that we could do. And it proves to me again and again, one of my core beliefs, which is we are all beings with fantastic ideas that have every bit of power that we need to get ourselves through whatever situation we need if we'll just tap into them. Yeah. And every time I'm in that situation, there's all sorts of new ideas that might get us out of a financial sticky situation or a emotional situation. And it's just being confident in that. Hey, it doesn't matter what happens in life. To me, it's always a learning opportunity. I always believe my journey is about growth and learning and that it's during the dark times where I've grown the most. It was one of my deepest assignments I did during positive psychology where I think you saw that one, Vips, where it was going into the dark side of positive psychology and, and looking back on the experiences that were the hardest. And it made me realize that that's when I grew the most. And it was the time when I made a conscious choice of, well, why am I so scared of the future? Why am I so scared of uncertainty when I know that the shitty stuff that I've lived through is where I grew the most? So if more shitty stuff happens, if I'll I learn some it, more, I'll learn some more. <laughs> yeah. And, and today I was talking to, to a niece of mine, um, Jim's, Jim's brother's daughter, and she's the wisest little 18-year-old. They do grow them wise these days, Vips. And she's lived through a lot with her family situation. And and she's getting into psychology and Buddhism and chakras and you name it. And I was like, man, to be that young and that wise and to start to get that perspective, having lived through so much, what a gift. And she was saying that she's connecting with people in their 40s or 50s more because we're usually at this yeah. point where you start this yeah. deep work. I mean, she happens to be a little 18-year-old figuring it out. And yeah. it's, it's pretty amazing. I wish I wish I wish I was there when I was eighteen. So you didn't. You didn't. I mean, I've I've known you long enough to know that this is version four, Vicky. 
<laughs> or version five, Vicky. I don't know. It's it's some version that isn't version one, Vicky. So, I, <laughs> okay. so, so I, I'm very, I'm very curious. Like, how how do you, you know? So 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 take us back. Take us back a little bit to to the the version one to the to the, to the South African uh, upbringing, and uh, you know, I'm particularly interested in some of the things that shaped you along the way. Yeah, I'll do that. Now, as a young girl, I always remember going into the city centre in Johannesburg um, and looking up at skyscrapers with, with absolute wonder and enchantment. There was something about the CBD, other than the suburbs, that really got me enchanted. What happens in these buildings and all these office workers? To me, it was just so appealing. And I'm sure to many of our listeners, they'd be thinking, what? Crazy person. But that was always my calling. And I wondered, you know, what goes on there? And... and how do I get into that world? And all I ever knew going through school and, and university was that I needed to be in the business world and I needed to be influencing them in some way. And I didn't know what that meant. And so I grew up in uh, Johannesburg in, in South Africa. And um, my dad was a, he worked for the Johannesburg City Council as a electrical engineer and then managing teams in that space and, and fairly, fairly conservative, fairly risk averse, playing it small, taking care of his family. Good, good, good dad. And he comes from a, you know, a Scottish Irish heritage. And, and my mom um, comes from a family where her parents were German Jews that escaped to South Africa before, before the war. And her mom reinvented herself as a French Christian. Hmm. And my mom only knew that her mom was a German Jew uh, when she died and she got hold of her birth certificate. And uh, that's wow. how, you know, that talk about reinvention. <laughs> <laughs> it was so bad in, in those days to, to be seen as German or Jewish that they invented themselves. And um, so she grew up in this world of uh, be seen and not heard uh, be a good girl, do what's required. My dad's father was an architect who was deaf and his mother was a professor of maths at a university in South Africa. So he grew up with this, this family with, with his deaf dad where communication was a struggle. So both of them were, were definitely what I would call, they preferred to be quiet and behind the scenes and be good citizens mm. and be part of the system, not rock the boat, take care of the family, very family focused, very much about the ideal family scenario. And uh, they had me and my sister. My mom was an only child, so she had my sister a year a year after me, almost to the day. We we're, were both born in May, because she was so lonely as a little girl. And um, she thought, oh, well, they'll be the best of buddies. And because we were so close growing up and very similar in terms of capabilities and looks and everything else, uh, it was just too close. I think there's just too much competition uh, both ways. And. I can go into that story with you if you like, but that's been a, a deep journey. And over the last year, we've become really, really close. Um, but that's been a lot of deep inward work to get to that stage because um, at that point, it was it was much more about it just, just too much competition and too much proving ourselves in, in this family. And and for me, I always always wanted more. So we had a, we had a lovely living. I was one of the fortunate few, um, but we didn't do well. We just had a lovely living. So what I mean by that is um, we could afford a, a jar of Nutella for the whole month and then we'd have to wait till the next month before another one. We couldn't afford yogurt. My mom would have to make yogurt. But we had a car and house and, you know, we had a, yeah. had a lovely life. But there weren't any extras. So what that meant is at the age of 16, 
I got myself a cashier job in the supermarket. And then I got myself a catering job. And then I got myself in the restaurant industry. And then I got myself to one of the best restaurants so that I can make a lot of money. <laughs> Was it, and, is it tips in South Africa? Is it? Yes. Yeah. 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 It's all tips. Yeah. So you can imagine as an 18 year old, you know, earning as much a night where you could buy yourself a brand new leather jacket every day if you wanted to. Wow. That's nice. Was, when, you, when you're that, when you're 16 or whatever, that's awesome. Yeah, that, yeah, yeah, yeah. I was 18 at that stage, but yeah. 18. And um, actually that was one of the pivotal moments because I was at one of the best restaurants in South Africa. It was a seafood restaurant, high in Portuguese. You love the peri-peri chicken. It wasn't Nando's, but you know. It, <laughs> <laughs> hey guys, if you ever want to make me and Vips happy, bring us Nando's. That's lots, another, lots of good <laughs> memories at Nando's. <laughs> another story for another day. And um, there was a couple of the waiters that were career waiters. And most of us were students doing this as, as, as something to make money, putting ourselves to university. And it struck me with those, there was one guy in particular where he had an extremely wealthy family and they owned high-end boutiques. He had a chef, he had two chefs. One was the, the barbecue chef and one was the real chef. Mm. And it struck me really early on I mean, I watch the world very, very closely and I'm very curious at how people do things and the kinds of decisions they make and the consequences. That's always been a gift of mine. I've always been a watcher. If there was an Olympic sport for watching and learning, that would be my mode of operandi. Mm. But I watched him and I thought, huh, so here's a dude from a really wealthy family who, from my perspective, similar age to me, has no ambition. All he wants to do is be a waiter because his parents had said, him up to fail because he could never live up to their earning levels from his perspective and anything else would be a failure. And that was, that was a very real moment where I made that conscious choice of all oh, this cash is great, but this cash is great. I need a career. And so that allowed me to get my first job uh, in IBM where I'd earn less than waitressing. Yeah. A lot less than waitressing. So that was your first circle of suck, right? That was your first, that was your newbie to superstar performer journey. Yeah, yeah. And a little interlude in between, I, uh, I had a boyfriend at the time when we finished university, his dad was part of a company whose headquarters was in Switzerland. So I went to Switzerland with him for six months and that was back in 94. And it was the time when the country was going through a lot of change and I could not get a job. You know, I was qualified. I had this degree. So I did a degree, degree in business and a Bachelor of Commerce is what it's called in South Africa. I did a same, in, same in India, Bachelor of there Commerce. There we go. There we go. Good, good. Uh, I'm, I'm sure there's some UK aspect to that, some colonial oh, yeah. history to that. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And uh, he, he was spending six months doing an internship in Switzerland. And so I went with him. It was real fascination. So South Africans, Australians, New Zealanders, we all have this fascination for travel because it's so expensive to do from these countries. And, but there's just this hunger to experience the world because you feel so far away from everybody else. Mm. So that opportunity happened, but because the Swiss culture is very insular, I yeah. had no work experience, I might've had a degree, but there was no ways in hell I was getting a job. I wish I'd known that going in, <laughs> as opposed to spending six months beating the pavements, trying to find a job and I, uh, I have a relative in Switzerland who was head of technology for Philip Morris. And he spent a lot of time with me and helped me. And, and his recommendation was go back to South Africa, get yourself a job in IT technology. It'll get you a job anywhere in the world. And given all I knew was that I wanted to get into business, didn't matter what kind of business. 
that was it. So I waited for um, the the change of government, which happened uh, in May of '94. Everyone thought there was going to be a civil war um, when a change from white regime yeah. to uh, the ANC and Mandela came into power. But none of that happened. So I went back uh, and got myself a job uh, at, at IBM. And it was really the goal to come back to Europe. And within three years, and the work I got into initially was being more of a business analyst. But in a country like South Africa, at the end of the day, there's four banks. And when you've done the process redesign for four banks, <laughs> and they all say they're so different. <laughs> and they are not. I started looking over the techies and they were into workflow and imaging solutions and, and CRM solutions. Like, you know, that at least I'm learning, I'm doing something. And I realized again, being pretty switched on, even at a young age, that I was never going to advise executives when I was that young. So I knew I needed to cut my teeth on something. And I thought, well, this is as good a career as any, and IBM's a fantastic place to learn. And then within three years, had the opportunity um, with one of the service offerings that IBM bought, because they just gobble up little companies. like Yeah, this was, this was when they were absolutely ah, vacuuming up. up. Yeah, Lou Gerstner was yeah. in charge. That's you know, right. Gobbling yeah. up, gobbling <laughs> That's up the right. world. Yeah, gobbling and, up the world. Yeah. And I got the opportunity to um, either move to to Paris to their headquarters or the, or the UK, and, and either would have been fantastic. And the UK came through first. And in hindsight, it's a blessing because it's English speaking. <laughs> I hadn't really thought of the consequences. And, and of thought me. that through. <laughs> and, and thought that through. Perhaps I was twenty five. Well, it was, it was, it was good things. food or go to England. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> have the language exactly. And as it turned out, uh, Jim, my husband, uh, was in this team, and I wouldn't have met him that way either, so that would have sucked. So I'm really glad I chose the UK option. That's awesome. So hold on. So just for everyone, so these are your superstar performer years. Yeah. Yeah? Yeah. yeah. And you were a techie. Yeah. <laughs> believe it or not. <laughs> well, I, I believe spent... it. I saw it. I experienced <laughs> it. But, but I'm, I'm one of relatively few who know that, Vicky. Yeah, so one of my, I guess, life lessons has always been, and it's changing now for where I am in my life, but certainly my superstar performer years, was everything was a means to an end. It didn't really matter what Vicky needed or Vicky wanted. It was more the means to an end. Because I find joy in most things, it wouldn't really matter to me what the frame of reference was. I'd find joy and learning and goodness in it regardless. And that was a career in the late 90s, early 2000s that was... Yeah. A great way to see the world, great way to earn great money, be yeah. with super interesting people. So that kind of checked those boxes. Yeah, it still is. <laughs> <laughs> and luckily I'm, I'm bright enough that I can figure it out and, and get my way through it. And um, so that was an interesting part of the journey. And I moved across to the UK and spent three years uh, doing projects all over Europe, um, Hungary, Amsterdam, Germany for a year, doing middleware and um, call center solutions for mostly large banks. And then somebody came knocking, our friend Shashin Shah, um, and said, hey, you know, I'm starting up this integration <laughs> practice uh, at Arthur Anderson Business Consulting. Do you want to join me? And at that stage, I was thinking, nah, you know, I'm good here. I'm on a work visa. You know, life is good. Uh, and he kept pestering me and said, come and meet us. And so I got wooed. It was the early 2000s. I got wooed with the fish tanks and the fantastic cafeterias. That, that sixth floor strand the, was very, very impressive. Right? 180 the strand yeah, yeah. overlooking the River Thames. It was just everything a young little thing would be impressed by. No, I was impressed by that as well. I joined there too. <laughs> it was <laughs> the, the, that, that fish tank definitely, oh. definitely was worth every penny they spent on it. <laughs> it was extraordinary. Yeah. And 
you know, it was an interesting journey. Um, it was tough coming in as an advanced hire because when you come in as part of the graduate group, you, you take them through a school of... You have a cohort. Yeah, you know, you have a cohort of formatting of presentations and business communication. There's a very sophisticated program, whereas IBM was very technical. It wasn't mm. like that at all. So I was missing a lot of those core foundational techniques. And Ah, uh, we I, paid for that later on. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, you talk about that. <laughs> I thought that'd make you laugh. You did. I, I learned them along the way and it was it was, you know, it was it was painful, but I also wasn't it was a very cliquey environment and I wasn't fully part of the clique. And on one hand I loved the the types of people, you know, it was it was definitely very glamorous, very intelligent, fabulous people. I don't know if they're fabulous by our definition, but really interesting people. But on the other hand, it just it just felt like this this hamster wheel and I remember for me, um, well, there were two straws. One was Enron happened fairly soon after I joined Arthur Anderson Business Consulting a couple of years in. And that took, uh, that took Arthur Anderson down and we ended up at Deloitte. And given we just touched on the importance of the little things, given the hours we were working, I remember the Deloitte CEO walking in and going, those fish tanks, they have to go in that cafeteria, that has to go. And at that point, I was working on a really complicated handheld implementation for Avis. And it was bleeding edge technology yeah. and it wasn't working. And it was a freaking nightmare. And we were working on this thing till four in the morning for over a year and a half. And I was just so miserable. And for him to say that um, so glibly, to me, it was a signal of, of times to come. And then secondly, I was noticing in myself these bad managerial behaviors that I didn't like in the role models around me, the, the controlling, um, the making other people feel bad at your own cost. I was starting to notice those qualities come through me. I was 10 and a half years in the game and I thought, you know what, I'd rather just be a florist. <laughs> I, I don't want to be this person. Uh, it's, it's not me. And it affected me really, really deeply. And I remember Vips when I came to meet you, we, you had just started Quedis with Paramjit and Jamie and Andrew about six months before and I walked in we chatted I walked out and I said yep I'm joining and you were like don't you want to think about it <laughs> it was perhaps the most surreal interview I'd had to that point <laughs> <laughs> but but for me it was I'm like that like I endure yeah. a lot of pain but once I make up my mind totally. when the right thing comes along and I've been reflecting a lot of my life in terms of the husband I chose or the options I've had in career choices or locations I've moved for country, they don't happen quickly. But when the right thing happens, my intuition knows exactly what it is. And that's it. For me, that's it. There's no question about it. And I think I've been really fortunate to listen to it. And it's resulted in this really fabulous life. Yeah, you have very good antenna. The way I describe you sometimes when I'm talking to other people is your antenna for the things that are really important is extremely high. Whereas most people tend to spin a lot between what I'll describe as a bunch of wants, but they're not able to to kind of sort through and have a clear number one against this, you know, never-ending list of wants. Whereas your your number one number one is normally very clear and, and you know it when you see it. And um it, to me it also you made me think I think it makes you fearless. When you when you when you know when you know something is intuitively right the fear just evaporates and yeah, you, and you always know it's going to be hard work. <laughs> you yeah, always and, know and, it's going to be hard work, but the fear okay. goes away. 
yeah, and I'm okay with the journey and I'm okay with the patience and you know, even ending up on, you know, beach in Los Angeles, you know, probably somewhere in my heart, if you really would have asked me, would this be a dream of mine? I, I you know, deep down, I would have said yes. Would I have actually articulated it? Probably not. No, because then you're committed. <laughs> well, not only committed, but it's more, it's more, will I be disappointed yeah. or is this a yeah. pipe dream? Yeah. But every one of the amazing things that have happened in my life are way bigger and better than I possibly could have designed on my own. But it's being willing, as you say, to to latch onto it when it shows up and take advantage of it and, and shape it and create it in some ways so that it happens. All right, so I'm going to give you a really tough question now, right? Oh, boy. I'm so, going to have some tea, Vips. So when you, when you, you, you've said a couple of things, right? Like things have always turned out better than I ever imagined they could have. You've mentioned that I'm a joyous person and I see the joy in everything. What is that, genetics or choice? <laughs> I think there's two answers. So one is my middle name is Joy. So <laughs> I must have come out smiley. <laughs> we'll have to ask my dad that someday. <laughs> He'll giggle as he listens to this. So I must have been a little smiley thing um, when they met me. Um, but I would say that's probably 10%. I would say 90% is choice. How do you choose to experience joy? Hmm, that's a deep question. Like for me, if everything went completely tits up for us right now during this period, it's such an Englishism. Do. That's such an Englishism. <laughs> <laughs> There's going to be a bunch of Americans that lose their mind when they hear that. <laughs> oh, but it's from me, not you. So I can get away with it. <laughs> yeah, we have a we have a colleague, a client who's running right now, and he's probably tripping over. Yeah, that's right. That's right. <laughs> Yeah, somewhere, somewhere in Philadelphia or DC. I can't remember or where LA. Is, is the LA? LA right, oh, you're thinking yeah, of the right LA one? Probably LA right now because okay. of COVID. <laughs> yeah, should, be in, should be in DC, but probably LA right now. Um, but I know that I would work in a restaurant. Well, restaurants aren't great now either. But you know. <laughs> <laughs> Do you want to pick another one? Airline, maybe. <laughs> yeah. Uber, maybe. No, whatever. You know, I'd find whatever the, the COVID equivalent of something is. And I would find joy in that because... Um, for me, I fundamentally enjoy humans and I enjoy the interaction with humans and each situation puts me in a different environment with humans where I learn something new, no matter what their, their situation. And that, that stretches me, that creates a lot of growth for me. Hmm. And for me, for me, it's not so much about, you know, I like nice things. I love living a nice life, but I don't need it. So the start of the pandemic was probably the happiest time for me when we went inward and went really quiet and stopped spending and just started to appreciate <laughs> toilet paper <laughs> and like stretch out our meals because we weren't quite sure where we yeah, could go. You have a three hour meal. Yeah, or just even stretch them out in terms of buying them because you didn't know when you get groceries oh, again. Oh, yeah, yeah. Sorry, yeah, yeah. But, like practically. And the simplicity of it brings me a lot of joy because we live in this society that is so consumerism focused and don't get me wrong i love the nice things but they also confuse me whereas when i'm back in that simple world and everything's easy and clear i just feel so joyous so a very simple life let's say there was restaurants back in business and i was waitressing or whatever again um that was a happy time in my life you know that was a really really happy time it was silly it was fun it was carefree and I would look at that no matter what environments I'm in. Hmm. And even when they, you know, they, Vips knows I've been working on some projects over the years that haven't been ideal, but even those, I will look at the good side, I'll look at the, the value I can add, I'll look at the upside of it and find joy in them regardless, even if I'm selling my soul uh, to some degree. 
I'm getting older now, so I'm realizing that's not a good thing to do for my soul. And I'm able to make more It's choices. not worth the extra, extra wrinkles anymore, Vicky. It's not <laughs> worth it. <laughs> it's not. So I'm becoming less of a means to an end girl and more yeah. of a, what is my soul need girl? And yeah. that feels great. But there's a cost, you know, there's a cost. Okay, so those were your uh, uh, sort of, I'll call them your superstar performer years. You were doing, you know, work for IBM. You were a bit of a geek. You were working on MQ <laughs> or whatever integration tools we were using at the time. Web and, methods. And, and then, you know, started to abandon that and, you know, join Paramjit myself and, and the merry crew that became the ThinkShift, uh, sorry, the Quedis crowd. Um, and then I guess it was the, it was the awesome manager years. Ah, oh, that's, that was definitely the circle of sack. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I remember one particular uh, project that stands out where we were doing a really large transformation effort for um, the home office. So government organization operates in a very different pace and energy. Previously, I spent time in, in retail, in banking, very private sector focused. And naively, I thought a transformation of an organization <laughs> um, would be the same. I hadn't really thought through the cultural implications. So, you know, again, naivety of, of youth in our, in our careers. And let me pause to say at this stage, I'd moved on from being a technologist. So mm. when I joined Quedist, uh, the ask was really focusing on the people side of, of organizations. Our mission was friend of the CIO. <laughs> they did no technology. <laughs> <laughs> and their transformation agenda. And I was there to, to really lead the people journey. And it was, it was such an easy yes for me because deep down I knew I was a much better people person than I ever was a technologist. I'd done pretty well as a technologist, but that wasn't really my calling. And I knew technologists from the perspective of their limitations and also the challenges with outsourcing and building uh, young expertise when you have a single career path and what does that look like? And so I understood the mechanics in a very deep way, having lived in that world, the challenges between infrastructure and development, the challenges of putting things into production, of not being a black box for the customers and being gifted with... Um, high EQ and the ability to win people over. It was really at, easy at the time, At the time, that was a massive differentiator, right? I mean, yeah. it was like one in a thousand <laughs> just yeah. by virtue of... And, and to be able to talk to them in their language mm. and then go, oh, you know, we trust her and believe her. She's one of us. Oh, and she can do that stuff that we suck at. <laughs> it became a natural path for me. And so I was leading a practice that was transforming IT organizations, or as we called it in the UK, professionalizing IT organizations. Yeah, so many Americans struggled with that, but uh, they did. But I, I, still think I, I still think it works. I think it's a fantastic word because they're just <laughs> not professional. You know, all those challenges I talked about are not professional yeah. environments. If you have those challenges, I guess we have lots of egocentric leaders who like to think that they're professional, right? So I guess that's probably where it comes from. Yeah, all good intention, but in terms <laughs> right. of good intention, absolutely. <laughs> in terms of a professional service, I think their customers would disagree. Yeah. And so this particular particular project, um, I remember, yeah, I'm not a large person to start with, and I must have lost about, you know, 15 pounds. I wasn't having lunch. I was working 18-hour days. We delivered. It was successful. But I had this performance review where we had a five-point rating scale, and I think I usually got five out of fives, and this one was a four out of five. Oh, and Vips, you remember this close, dearly. You know, it was it was absolutely devastating for me. It was, to me, it felt like, well, for the last three years and all these hours I've been working and these happy customers yeah, all and all these results, what all a waste. waste. Yeah. 
because yeah. I got a four out of five, which in hindsight is ridiculous, but it goes back to my high achiever nature and my need to please. Um, it's something I've been working really hard on over the last uh, 15 years to, to not worry so much about what other people think. Um, but it was at that moment when I decided to make that, well, I decided to ask myself, is there a different way? And the moment I reflected on that and I looked around and I thought, <laughs> Do other people have difficult projects? Do other people have teams that have challenges? Because up until that point, I was like, I have the most complex projects. Yeah. I have, I have the teams that are the most challenging. You know, it was all fixed. So me, 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 me. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> the world revolves around me. Yeah. And my hair. <laughs> yeah, and my hair. And and Jim would say, you're a terrible delegator. And I'd be, I'm a great delegator. What are you talking about, Jim? <laughs> I'm a great delegator. I never let go. <laughs> I'm a great delegator. That's why I work 24-hour days, you know, whatever it might be. <laughs> I know the oxymoron of that's quite funny, isn't it? But oh. yet we believed it at the time. Oh, yeah, completely. But there was that moment and that moment. And also really, really dear friend, Amisha, and she'll love this as she listens to this, took me for a walk down by uh, Regent's Canal. And she said, look, this isn't working. She was on my project. And at that moment, I could feel my friendship disappearing. And I thought, this is not worth it. You know, whatever this Vicky Beast has become because of my previous role models and whatever my beliefs are, whatever it is, is not worth it. This is my darling friend, one of my best friends. And if that friendship ends because I'm a bitch, that's not okay. I have to learn to figure this out. And it was those two things that shifted me to asking what if. And it's amazing when you start to ask what if that your eyes open up and you start to realize that there are different ways. And that became my journey of learning all the tools that now we teach others through our awesome manager program which yeah. i wish we'd learned ahead of time but hey we had to find the way to be able to save others from the deep misery that we went through yeah so i remember that well and uh, i i have uh, i have nothing but positive memories of that but i also know how painful that was oh um, it, was. Particularly, it was particularly for you but um yeah. uh what what then emerged though from that well, was what? Well, well, you know, for me, for me, what happened was, you know, once I'd made that shift and life became easy and it, it, it went from me feeling like feeling like I'm <laughs> I have a canoe and everyone's holding me back. They're hanging on the end of the canoe, weighing me down to, oh, they're in my canoe rowing with me just by making that mental switch because I showed up differently. So that was that was absolutely amazing. And if you told if you told me that that's what would have happened, I wouldn't have believed you. Yeah. And. And so what then happened was this practice of ours became really successful and we were working with with top CIOs all over London. I had a women CIO networking group that I worked really closely with. We met up all the time. We just had this really fantastic practice. And internally in Quedis, we were figuring out all the small steps of creating a place where people love to work. We figured out how to create magic to hire the right people um how to how to give them tons of feedback uh even if uh even if they were doing really well <laughs> yeah yeah and most people coming in we used to go through a desensitizing program with them because yeah. they were used to it yeah but you started to crave it once you got feedback every day yeah. and you knew it was coming from a place of good intention and i watched it's hard to see ourselves but i watched all my team around me and those at my peer level and watched the growth that would never have happened without that. So I firsthand saw growth and performance of the company and we figured out how to rewire managers and a gazillion things. You know, we figured out how to go from a culture of 20 to 40 with a new construct around families and someone took care of the social and the communication. All the little points around the journey that normally would cause us pain, we figured it out. 
And a lot of it is thanks to you, my friend, and um, leading us through that journey. And it became so addictive to me because go back to young Vicky, who used to look up at the skyscrapers and wonder what happened. Turning up at IBM and having that first circle of suck. And then as I moved from IBM South Africa to the US, asking some really tough questions. What do my peers earn? What are new joiners earning? And realizing I was the lowest paid. They're bringing in new grads that were earning more than me. Wow. And starting to realize that the world isn't a fair meritocracy. You have to fight for yourself. And realizing as I did more and more research that 60 to 70% of the workforce is highly disengaged for a lot of good reasons, whether yeah. sucky managers, all the things I've talked yeah. about. And then for us to figure it out, it was like, ah, we have the secret Alexa. We were spoiled. We were spoiled for a decade, if you think about well, it. Well, we, work, we worked retrospect. really hard. Yeah, we worked really hard. But it was, I, I, for me, speaking for me, it was really hard for me to recognize that that's just not how anyone else sees the world. Yeah. I mean, and, we, and, we were and, such an exception that, but that I didn't realize until we were doing something else. You know? well, for me, I realized it because I was in all these other companies, yeah. you know, that, that, um, but what, what I also loved is we'd go to these small business awards, the Sunday Times business right. awards every year. And we were always, you know, top one, top two, top three, top 10. And there was only ever companies like organizations like Christians Against Poverty, you know, with a real, with a real <laughs> cause. The real cause centric. The real cause centric. Yeah, that's as true. Opposed to as opposed to a consulting of, company. Yeah, a bunch of yeah. Ponzi consultants serving IT yeah, directors. Totally. totally. <laughs> And that made me really proud. And so what's driven me always is organizations and creating a place where people love to work. And us having that secret elixir became my thing. And I was doing it anyway through my professionalizing IT practice. But as the journey went on um, and moved to the US in, in 2013, um, and that's probably a story for another day. Um, the shortest version is my, my, my husband, Jim, did really well in his career as a head of uh, IT for Credit Suisse and a huge job at Vodafone. But the politics really got to him and the, the toxicity of it all. And so it started affecting his health. And um, when he stopped working and we're living in the UK as a New Yorker and a South African, and we're looking at the weather and it's <laughs> the Socks. January blues. The January blues are going from one week to yeah. two weeks to six weeks and the Brits aren't drinking in January and there's no money. And you're like, what are we doing here? And so engineered a move to move to, to move to um, Los Angeles as we'd been acquired by North Highland at the time. So that was fairly easy to do. And even that was funny because I had the opportunity to come to LA or to Sydney where one of the sister companies were. And I remember the CEO of the US company saying, but they're so different. You know, how, how could you compare them? And I'm like, you're making it way more complicated. Sun <laughs> and a beach. <laughs> sun and a beach and the rest is going to be fine i don't care which option it is but in the hindsight very very pleased it ended up being los angeles because we have our definition of of fabulous but there's a personal definition of fabulous for me which is all about high energy environments that have a very cosmopolitan feel where the latest and greatest is happening and that's definitely los angeles you know there's so much energy there's so much diversity you can find anything and everything, and you can find a little secluded pocket as well. And we're in the secluded pocket with access to everything. And uh, that was, I think, Sydney would have ended up being a bit small for, for who we are and, and what we like to do in the world. That's pretty amazing. So I got to ask you, so for, you know, I, I know that you coach and work with a lot of people that I work with too as well. We know, you know, a whole bunch of people together. But when you, when you look back, like if you could speak to your younger self, what's the three bits of advice you would give that, that, 
a person who was just going back from Switzerland back to South Africa and trying to figure out a way to engineer a trip to either Paris or England? What would you, what advice would you give that, that particular Vicky? Oh, I love that you say that behind me on the wall. I don't know if you can see it behind my bookshelf. There's a, a note to my younger self. I'll have to send that to you sometime. <laughs> that looks like an essay. Yeah, yeah, yeah it, is. it is. It was one of my positive psychology assignments. Um, but it was something like, know that your parents, uh, you know, love you and want the best for you, but they're risk averse and they're not going to understand the journey you want to be on, but they'll love and support you regardless. And be okay with that. Don't don't judge them for their beliefs. It's okay if that's how they are. Uh, and, and secondly, for myself, is spend more time in the moment and just enjoy being, because it's all going to work out in the end. It oh, always absolutely. does. Even if it's shitty stuff. You know, I, I went through some pretty tough stuff in 2001 where Jim had leukemia. Two months earlier, my mom passed away like that. She never wanted to get to 60. A few months before her 60th, gone. It was really tough. He lost his dad. She's my hero. I just want to say. <laughs> <laughs> Careful what you wish for, my friend. <laughs> that was said with full intention. <laughs> yep. We know that, so we're not going to let him die anytime soon. <laughs> and, um, yeah, I know that it's going to work out in the end. So don't only focus on the means to the end, but really enjoy the journey. And I wish I'd done more of that because in Europe, Jim and I had the most amazing experiences. We talked about the Quetus experience, but we got to travel all over mm. Europe on weekends and really take advantage of the proximity, the cash we had. And absolutely, I had a ball, but always with this heaviness of there's so much to achieve, as opposed to the place where I'm right now, which is actually enjoying the moment. And I would, if I was doing it over, I'd be just, just enjoy it because it's truly special and you don't get to do this again like that. It's always easy, one, easy in hindsight. No, it's so true. It's so true. Yeah. I want to ask you one, two more questions. We've got about three minutes to go, I think. Um, and uh, the, the first one is, so, <clears throat> you know, you have credit for coming up with the term fabulous. Okay. And we, uh, you know, that's a, whole, that's a whole other topic we can go into. But I'm really, I'm so I'm thankful to you, firstly. I think it's a thank you. It's a public thank you. Um, because the, the ability to capture so many fragments of what we knew we meant that no one else could understand, but which we knew every time we saw it, that's fabulous, that isn't fabulous, that person's fabulous, that person's not fabulous, that's a good person to recruit, that's a not a good person to recruit, that's the fabulous thing to do, that's not the fabulous thing to do. Um, I, I don't know if that was engineered, I don't know if that was problem solved, I don't know if that was organically grown, um, particularly between our relationship and a few others, you know, Rav and and Amisha, you mentioned earlier, and Jamie, and there's, there's, a, there's a few of us who I think were, were, were part of the, uh, I don't know, the fabulous recipe, if you like. Mark Norris. Mark Norris. Yeah. I'm Pramjit. Um, yeah. uh, ben, to a certain extent as well. I mean, there was a whole bunch of folks who I think had a, you know, were, were getting their, um, uh, their, their, their ingredients in, if you like. And so I, I'm, I'm like, so for you, um, how do you look for fabulousness? How do you know it when you see it? So it's a little bit like what I mentioned earlier, when, when I know something's right for me, and then there's no question that I go for it, you know, whether it's deciding to marry Jim or my engagement ring or my wedding dress or the, my, our LA condo or this job or joining up with you 
and and joining the thinkship journey or which clients I want to work for it I know before I know I know before there's any words in my system to know so some might call it intuition um, some might call it being guided but I know at my core and then it's then it's looking for data and putting words around it to to understand what it is and it lends itself to all the characteristics we've described already but there's probably a lot more to it as we spend the years and things shift together that will get richer in our language around it because it, to me there's also a a sparkliness to it there's a there's a there's a glow to it and, and not in an extroverted glitzy hollywood kind of way it's it can be very subtle it can be very soft it can be very sweet but it's there and i don't think it's something that i have a word for you know sparkly is probably the best way i can describe it but i i i know it when i see it it's it's the energy it's probably the energy this other person puts out that makes me feel the energy and go this is it and then i look for the data that tries to characterize it in the way that we've created a model but it's much deeper than that it's it's all about the exchange of energy and and their impact on me and are they moving me forward are they uplifting me are they inspiring me um just by their who they are not what they do and it can be a five minute conversation and i'm like oh i just need to be around this person there's something about them that is magnetic um doesn't have to be charismatic doesn't have to be big and loud but i know there's a soul calling it's like we're souls together in another life and um, they're moving forward and there's an energy around them that I want to be part of. I know. So now we've got like, however many people that listen to this are going to be like, <laughs> well, that's not particularly helpful. How the hell do I, how the hell do, I do that? But no, I, I, I think you're absolutely right. I, I, I call it the magic. I'm afraid you, you call it sparkly. I call it, there's a, there's a magic. And I think as the years go by, we'll get better and better and better at peeling the onion and articulating it better. We will. We will. I think we've got to probably version two articulation. There's probably a version three and a four um, to do as well. Like I, I, you know, I'm conscious of time and uh, and I just want to thank you for being so open. And uh, and I can't I can't I can't share how pleasant it is and how wonderful it is, how fabulous it is. Dare I say, um, to be kind of working through this because I do believe that. Even I can see it now that people we've been working with for four, five, six, seven years, you're seeing them get promoted. You're seeing them move places. They're taking that knowledge, that, that, that philosophy of creating fabulous organizations that people want to work for, to be better leaders for, for the world's problems that, that, are, that are out there. Uh, I thank you um, for being part of, uh, part of this journey. I know, it's, uh, I, know, I know it's something that you love. I know it's something that I love. And I just can't think of a better way to spend the next uh, however many years we do this. It's uh, it's very cool. Thank you, Bips. I uh, I feel the same way, and it's it's such a gift to be able to work with leaders of organisations who truly want to adapt their organisations to be the place where they have great profits and results, and create a place where people love to work and that that culture of it's, it's almost it's almost too easy to make money without the other stuff, right? Yeah, and they, they light me up, and that's my mission. If I could touch every organization on this planet and show them the magic, that's my big mission. <laughs> Just that's, a little. That's pretty little awesome. That's pretty. Thank awesome. you, Vips. I, I appreciate you so much. Uh, likewise, and uh, to the next to the next twenty five years. To the next twenty. 20- <laughs> <laughs> I'm just thinking about I'm just thinking about the 60 years we just talked about a minute ago. But yes, to the next 25 years, let's 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 make that a goal. Um, 
but, uh, but, but thank you for being so open. We'll be a lot more wrinkly, but still fabulous. Absolutely. And, and you know, for anyone who's listening out there, you'll, you'll be amazed how much of what you've heard today, you know, weaves into not just the philosophy, but the tools and techniques that, that, that we use every single day um, to help not just organizations, but, but people work through some pretty tough situations to become better leaders. So with that, I think that's a wrap for, oh, hold on. Is there a Vicky challenge? How can we not have a Vicky challenge? <laughs> I just realized we have to have a Vicky challenge. Ah, okay. On the spot. What's the most Vicky like things that you can imagine you doing? No, I'm just kidding. Yeah. Yeah. So the, uh, the Vicky challenge is, um, whatever situation you're in, look for the learning moment and it won't feel so sucky. There'll be goodness in it. Okay, cool. And make a note of it daily for five days. How's that? Okay, you can make a tactic. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to keep it for fun. <laughs> I just want something to do something with it. Um, no, it's very right, cool. Guys. That's awesome. Thank you very much. And um, that's a wrap. Everyone be fabulous. <laughs> <laughs>